Hello everyone, my name is Joshua Gilliland and I am one of the two founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining me today for our special countdown to San Diego Comic Fest podcast where we have two of the creative team from the X-Men animated series, Eric and Julia, Julia Leeward. How are you two doing? Doing well, doing well. Be walled. Be walled. <laughs> I was so I'm a sailor, so whenever I see that, it's like, hey, it's opposite of windward, and here we are. So that's what I get all the time. We're 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 doing great. We're uh, we're uh, we love the fact that you guys were curious about the show, and love the fact that you guys are curious about a mock hearing. So yes. well, we can talk about that after. We talk about you. So you two are awesome. I've been watching the animated series. It's such a love letter to to the comics. I know so many friends who loved it, watching it. And for for our listeners, uh, today you would would have been considered the showrunner. But in the 90s with animation, you would have been uh, credited with the development and in charge of the writing for the animated series. Yeah, yeah. Just when when the show got started, yeah, in in typical tel- typically in television, some one person is given a the kind of creative responsibility for setting up the show and supervising the stories. And in all live action television, it's really easy now. They just they used to call executive producer. There are a number of different titles now. They just refer to them as a showrunner. In animation, it's a little more complex because there's so much work on the art side, creating the look of the characters, directing them, storyboarding, all that. There's, it's, it's a larger group. So for whatever reason, animation, people that are told, come up with a show or adapt a show or give us a show are, aren't, as all, aren't always called showrunners. Maybe it's because there's just so many important people at the top in creating an animated show. Well, we're just about at the 25th anniversary of the show, yes. which is awesome. And that's part of their big celebration that's going to happen at San Diego Comic Fest. What do you guys have planned for Fest? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> um, I, I'll admit that I kind of was uh, poking at Eric a little bit over the last uh, few years, realizing that 25th anniversary was going to be coming up. And that number just was astonishing to realize. but that 25 years have passed, but it, X-Men, T, uh, the animated series, has, still has such resonance for so many folks. And the times that we've been able to go to, you know, various fests or cons, it really, people were very excited about it. The flip side is that, unlike, say, Batman, the animated series, which had and has the full support of the Warner Brothers studio, or Star Trek with Paramount, uh, Dear X-Men, the animated series, kind of fell through the cracks uh, once... Marvel ended up going through a bankruptcy at the time of the production. And there were a lot of moving parts in the producing of the show. There was Saban, there was Graz and Fox kids. So no one was able, no one's been shepherding it for the last few years, last 25 years because no one was in charge of it anymore. So simply there, there there hasn't been much written about it uh, anywhere or, uh, you know, podcasts about it, uh, uh, articles about it. And in, in this specific case, Julie just said, well, look, you were in the middle of it all from the day, from day one. Why don't we write a book about it? And 
so I interviewed, I've interviewed 38 folks, writers, artists, cast members, executives. And so a making, like the making of Star Trek, that was our model uh, <laughs> because we're Star Trek fans. Yes. So a making of the X-Men, the animated series book is coming out later this year. And uh, Comic Fest is the first uh, con where it'll be announced. And we'll tell you about the publisher. We won't be able to have pre-sales yet. The publisher won't be quite set up for that. Maybe by WonderCon. Um, but so that's that's what's got us, uh, you know, that's what we're at. We're specifically going down to WonderCon because those nice guys who've had this before. Uh, oh, Comic Fest, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Comic Fest. Comic, Comic Fest, Fest, February, Comic Fest yes. First. Comic Fest first, those guys. Uh, they uh, they asked us to come down. We're going to be doing, besides being part of a, looks hope to be part of a great trial, <laughs> um, four panels, one just a general panel about the show, and we have, we're have we having three writers come down, and each one is going to talk about a show that they wrote. We're going to show the episode and then let them talk to the audience about about them writing it. And then uh, what was uh, the last? So, well, so the, so the screenings look to be a, a fun thing because we'll, we'll have screens of, of three you know, specific episodes, including uh, Days, of Future Past. Days of Future Past. And then, again, speaking with the, the writers of those episodes immediately following. So, you know, if folks have specific questions or we, we can have that kind of dialogue. And, and Larry Houston, who is... Designer, producer. He was, he was the line producer, the hands-on producer for the four, first four years. If you ever saw any Easter eggs in the show, it was no doubt Larry Houston who yeah, put them he, there. Dozens of them. You know, that's all. He's an X-Men freak, so... All that background, all those background characters that you can be thankful for. I never would have thought to write him in the scripts. Larry snuck him in. So he will be there, and uh, we're th- we understand as of right now, and it could change, but, but Saturday late afternoon will be the, 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 the general X-Men panel. which we'll With everybody, with Larry all the writers Houston. and Larry and everybody together to, to just ch- talk about the show in general. Uh, for in, and this October will be the 25th anniversary of the sneak preview of the first showing of it, which there's a whole story about. It was supposed to start in <laughs> September along with Batman, but there were production delays and various other issues that slowed it up. And so it actually premiered in January of, of uh, 93, but there was a couple sneak previews in the fall of 92. And that's why everybody refers to it as X-Men 92 because of those sneaks. There, there is so much awesome to digest <laughs> everything that you, you've mentioned. Uh, first off with Fest, I, I absolutely adore Mike Towery. He, he is one of the statesmen of being a geek, and the geek world owes him a debt that can never be repaid for what he and his buddies did in creating San Diego Comic-Con that trip they took to go meet Jack Kirby when they were kids and Mrs. Kirby barbecued hamburgers for them. Just an absolute gentleman. Uh, I adore his wife, Wendy, and it's going to be great to see them and hang out with them. So there's that. I'm totally (laughs) looking forward to your panel. Uh, I think we're all going to be in the same room because our mock trial is going to be Saturday as well. And my brother is having a screening of his film, which will be in the same room, and there'll be that. So it'll be interesting to see timing, how, how they do this all. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're one after another. Because yeah. uh, uh, yeah. yeah, 
there's vested interest in all the X-Men fans. <laughs> we just see, to see all the X-Men panel material and our mock hearing. So it should be a lot of fun. Yes, agreed, agreed. So I've been watching the animated series, and, and I will disclose when, when it came out, when for me, end of high school through college and law school, uh, that was when I was really boring. Uh, I was very focused on school and studying, and I was not known for going out and having fun or downtime because I was very studious, um, which meant I was never invited to parties. So, um, but hey, I was popular when finals were due in midterms. Yeah. Like that's when I was Mr. Popular. Uh, but let's let's talk about some of the episodes. Julia, you wrote the part one for the Days of Future Past episode. Days of Future Past. Uh, so in the X-Men comics, uh, going back to, I think, 63, September of 63, you know, they always you know, interacted with civil rights. They presented a variety of civil rights issues. Mm-hmm. The comic has always been very good at that. Uh, it was part of the inspiration for us to do a mock hearing uh, was because of those issues, also in part, part from the Logan movie coming out. But uh, what were some of the civil rights issues that you wanted to work in to the cartoon that were aimed for you know, kids to, to young people to talk about weighty issues of discrimination and civil rights in a way that young people would understand? You had the, the civil rights leaders. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, there was, uh, within, within the group of people doing the show, the Fox people uh, and the, uh, the executives like Sidney Iwander and Margaret Lesh and us on the writing side and the, uh, the Marvel folks who were advising um, and the artists, there was all kind of an agreement that it was a pretty straightforward. For us, it was a fairly clear reference to the, the, the argument about integration versus segregation. We were, we were in our thirties, we were old enough that we were children in the sixties and we remembered all of that have gone through there and all the big, the big contradiction between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. But on one side, there was a, a request for us all to come together and be one people. And the other was more of a strident, uh, no, they'll never accept us. Uh, their white black relations have been so strained. We have to look after ourselves and be separate. So, uh, professor X and Magneto became for us, a, it was a very conscious choice. And this was, this was much lighter in the early books. Chris Claremont's books strengthened it somewhat. But we were very conscious that the question, do we are, you know, we are different. We've been, the mutants in the show, we're perceived to be different. We scare people and thus there's hatred and an attempt to separate uh, one group of people from another. And so we wanted uh, Magneto to be the, the person asking for segregation and a separate, you know, like, like a black nation would have been in the sixties. Um, we wanted his arguments to be reasonable and we wanted these two sides. You wanted to be, res- be able to respect both sides yet 
they couldn't get along. They, you know, they couldn't defer to the other because they each believed so strongly in their position. So it was very, very self-consciously. We'd have it in memos. We'd go back and forth and say, okay, Professor X is, doing, is taking the Martin Luther King stance of inclusion and peaceful coexistence. And Magneto saying, no, we've tried that. It's failed. Uh, we have to look after ourselves as mutants. They never will accept us. So we have, and there's a, we had an episode where he sets, uh, he sets up a, a separate society on an asteroid and hundreds of mutants go join him. A couple of the X-Men are tempted and he gets betrayed by it, but he doesn't change his ideals to, 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 for a separate nation. So those are the two, those are the two things that were really at odds. And we wanted to keep and especially some of the early books, it was much. It was more. Oh, there's a there's a scary mutant on the loose. We have to fight him, and we wanted to highlight the human mutant uh, strains, like civil rights strains, like the racial strains in America. I mean, think about it. Ninety two around there. It was Rodney King trial. It was the riots. It was the OJ trial. All that was happening around here. So it was all very. It was all very alive in our imaginations when we were writing the stories. It wasn't a historical reference. It was a very timely reference for us doing the stories. And I see that. I mean, I was, you know, high school, college, you know, you know crossing that period. And I recently rewatched or watched a documentary on OJ that covered uh, 60s civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, uh, what the LAPD did to the African-American community, looking back through Watts. And, I mean, very powerful to look at that and to think about those issues because uh, it's, <laughs> it's complex, deep, and thoughtful. And from Beast being imprisoned in some of the early episodes, not leaving jail. I mean, it, it, that did remind me some of King and Gandhi, yeah. uh, you know, to, to a degree that, no, he wanted his day in court. Uh, to like Mag Magneto's flashback story with his origin. Yeah. You guys didn't do the concentration camp. It looked like the, the fictionalized bad place how did you approach that well it just it was we, we had a, a problem when 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 uh stan did the original back in the early 60s there was a reasonable time frame for a 45 year old superhero to have filed within the holocaust but now we were 30 years later so unless magneto is 90 it's going to be hard for him to be 90 at least 75 <laughs> It's going to be hard for him to be a child of the Holocaust. So we, we, we and Marvel all agreed that, that we were going to try to just make it a more general struggle, you know, a, a difficult war-torn struggle for him, but not make it specifically Nazi Germany. And in fact, it was one of the notes we had in the movie. We thought, well, you know, this, this Holocaust images for Magneto are very compelling, but this is 2000. That makes him 80-something uh, when the movie came out. Uh, if he was a kid, if he was born in uh, 19, 35 to yeah, 35, yeah. say, or at least would have made him, what did they, 65? Anyway, it was 
I, although I guess with Ian McKellen, he probably was 65. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it just seemed too long of a stretch for all the creative people to keep the Holocaust reference. And so it was simply a war-torn, uh, yeah. he was, his family was destroyed by a war rather than by Nazis and made it, made it generic and, and not a specific year. Creatively makes sense. Even though when I, I think of X-Men First Class, I, I could have handled an entire movie with Magneto as the Nazi hunter. I would have been fine oh, with great. that. Oh, God. Some of the best scenes of the film were him chasing down ex-Nazis. <laughs> yes. <It's>, yes. <clears throat> Thinking about you know, everything that you did on the animated series, what are some of your favorite X-Men stories. You know, thinking in terms of sort of characters, always Beast for me uh, turned out to be my, my favorite uh, of them because you've got this amazing, brilliant, romantic soul in this body that's the most obviously mutant. You know, he... He can't pass. He can't, yeah. And I just, I always enjoyed that, that he was the most sort of at ease or appeared to be the most at ease with himself. But that's kind of what got us off on um, what became eventually a story called uh, Beauty and the Beast. Which Julia came up with the, the idea for in a reference to the Chaplin movie of the, the, with the blind girl, City Lights. And so oh, this would be perfect for Beast because he's not self-conscious about, he's so not self-conscious, but this suddenly makes him self-conscious. He looks back through a, his, his family album and sees himself gradually changing from a normal looking kid to this beast. And it just tears him up. And, and that just, that and if he's to be, if, if this woman that he has feelings for, you know, then regains her sight, which is what he's there to do. You know, she'll see him as he really is. And that, that horrifies him. But then tying that into the, the, the bigger story of, you know, friends of humanity versus mutants and how you know, the, um, these two just eventually will not be able to be together because of her own father's uh, you know, hatred of, of mutants, even though he comes around a little yeah, bit. The father comes around at the end, but Beast realizes that the society isn't ready for them yet, and that he's just going to bring danger to this young woman. And so he walks away brokenhearted. But yeah. uh, to the, you know, um, I don't think it's one of the, maybe the 10 best episodes, but one of my favorites is one man's worth just because, you know, you pick the ones that, you know, you maybe came up with the original idea for it's a reference to it's a wonderful life and to the Terminator movies and to uh, city on the edge of forever. Just the idea that one person could change existence just by having lived. And that was just a cool, was a cool idea. And I had great sympathy for Xavier. You know, I was, as I said, I was, I was kind of the the responsible adult in charge of getting all the the writing done for four years, and so I felt kind of like the bald guy in the wheelchair, keeping <laughs> track of them. And ninety eight percent of people, if you ask, who's your favorite character, well, most will say Wolverine, and it'll all over the place. And there's even a large number of people will say Jubilee, who I was surprised to find out that they got into the th show through her. But nobody says professor, and so I, I've got to I got to throw him some props. I, I really I really liked writing for him. I I agree with both of you and understand your logic. You know, 
I've always I've always liked Professor X, even though in, in the comic and a lot of stories he gets taken out so easily, and like that's something that's always kind of bothered me. Or I think he set the record for dying in the comics. <laughs> Yeah. I, I've I've lost track, and I I kind of gave up counting. It's like, oh, is he dead again? Uh, uh, like, leave him alive. But I've always liked Hank McCoy. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought great at Avenger. Yeah. And so from the years he was on the Avengers, those were great stories. And if I remember right, that's when he ends up blue from experimenting on himself to uh, the X Factor years, and. So like when when I was a kid and collecting comics in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, my brother bought X-Men and that's how I would read X-Men. I got X-Factor and that's how he would read X-Factor. So that way we're not both buying the same comics because that would not be financially responsible with <laughs> it. Uh, we expended our buying power that way. Uh, and there was the entire arc and X factor where he's human looking, but because of either an experiment, I don't remember what happened, but every time he used his, his strength, he got dumber. And so it was sapping his intelligence and Scott eventually restores him by turning him blue and furry again. And he, he's you now still blue and furry in the comics, which yeah, one of my favorite characters. Uh, there are many. There's no shortage of Marvel characters that are inspiring and complex. Uh, but that's it's very interesting to hear your thoughts. Which brings us to you answered my next question of who are your favorite characters, and and now I know. So, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we we do have our mock trial coming up, and uh, this should be fun. So. For those who are listening and wondering, you know, how, how, we, how we are following up with the mock trial of the Winter Soldier from last year, it's a mock hearing with a mutant rights group seeking an injunction uh, from an, an executive order issued by a fictional president that uh, mandates the registration of all mutants, internment of mutants, and then anyone who resists Sentinel's uh, lethal force can be used against them. And we pulled from Days of Future Past, God Loves, God Loves, Man Kills, and we created the mass casualty incident that kicks off everything from Facts from Inferno. And we, so there's homages to, to different, different uh, stories. A lot of, basically everything Chris Claremont did. <laughs> we, uh, God, that guy's brilliant. <laughs> 17 years of, of writing X-Men and you know, we, we didn't mean for it to be this timely uh, because when we came up with this, this was pre, you know, Trump executive orders and the ACLU doing everything. So that's just unique timing with how that worked out. Uh, but, you know, the, the moving papers, the, the students, are, we have students from two law schools uh, so, and with one being McGeorge, my alumni, and seeing uh, the draft arguments that are going back and forth from equal protection and the government's position that mutants aren't people. Well, and so, in the same way that we were talking about how in 1992, 
there was all this, the general, the, the civil unrest happening, and especially out here in Los Angeles, that was, that was actually happening right then. But you can look back and the, the greater civil rights movement in the 60s, which, is, which also happened. And then you've got the Japanese-American internment from World War II. I mean, you think, okay, we're past it now. It's like, we're not past, we're never past it. So I, I think part of, at least for me, you know, X-Men's appeal is the fact that it can tell those kinds of stories um, with with these kinds of characters, and you, you think, oh, we're, okay, we're we're past that now, and it's like, and, and look, 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 no, we're not. <laughs> yeah, that's, another a, a civil rights uh, statement that the show made that we think kind of made um, implicitly, not explicitly, the same way that Star Trek did in the sixties. We hope we hope to do it that effectively. Was that out here in Hollywood? still, especially in heroic stories, it tends to be 90% men and 90% white men. And it's, for the X-Men, we had half the X-Men were women and the two strong, most powerful X-Men were women. And we didn't say a word about that. There's no, you know, feminist power, you know, sisters unite. It just was, here's a team of eight people, four of them are female. and they all work together seamlessly, just like, you know, the crew on the Enterprise. There's, people aren't going around celebrating the fact that Ohura is, has brought diversity to the Enterprise. It's just an assumed part of everyday life. And so that was, we like to have our implicit civil rights statement that this is a meritocracy. Uh, Xavier doesn't pick people because of their gender uh, or their color. He picks them because they're mutants and they need to be part of this family. And that was, uh, even looking back now, you know, we get, we've had work since and it tends to regress. And we in Hollywood refer to it as the Smurfette thing where you've got six Smurfs and a Smurf and a token Smurfette. Even, you know, in action shows, you'll have someone, you know, a, a woman tacked on somewhere and, uh, the rest of, you know, it's all the guys pushing the action. And that, that was something we were, I mean, we weren't being pushy about it, but it just didn't occur to us to cut, to cut the women down on the show just because we were looking for a balance of different kinds of people with different kinds of powers. It ended up being 4-4. Four, four. Mm-hmm. And again, the strongest ones were Storm and Rogue and Jean Grey with, with her special powers. And, and it's like, I like to think that the people who, the, the people who are now people who were younger when they were watching it, you know, in the same way with Star Trek, it's like, that's just how it is. Hopefully, you know, for them now, it's like, well, sure, that's just how it is. You know, we have people who are all genders. We have people of all colors, of all faiths. We like to think we try to get some of that information, set that up for folks um, back then. Yeah. Well, it's, I think of the last two Star Wars movies that you have Force Awakens, where you allegedly you have people in Hollywood who say you can't make a movie that has a female lead and an African-American lead. And, oh, look, it's the most highest grossing movie ever. Hey, it worked. Or Rogue One did it again. And it's just a compelling story. Uh, X-Men and and comics and and sci-fi often can make this that point without people noticing. Because you can say it's the mutants being persecuted, 
you know, I reread uh, uh, God Loves, Man Kills uh, this past weekend. And, what, you know, it's a powerful opening because it's two mutants escaping where they are and they're brutally executed. And the people who kill them string them up on a playground to be examples. And you read it and it's mutants being persecuted. They were African-American and the people who killed them were white. And it's Magneto who finds the bodies and basically gives them a proper burial. And I was looking at it going like, this is brilliant because kids, teens, people in their 20s or 30s reading it probably overlooked the fact that they were black. And that they were getting strung up like the horrifying pictures of of African-Americans who were lynched from the 1890s through the 1930s. And and it's powerful, and it's in a comic. So I've always admired that part of storytelling because you can talk about real issues in a way that people – don't consciously recognize it sometimes or they start overlooking the fact that it's somebody who's not white who's being persecuted and they're jumping to their defense. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think the X-Men have always been a good allegory for the civil rights movement. Sure. Yeah, I've, I, I've talked to people about, about this is that a number of, I think they naturally are, feared and discriminated against versus let's say Spider-Man. I mean, Peter Parker is the nicest kid I've ever met. They have to twist themselves into pretzels and do somersaults to try to figure out ways to get the public to be, to fear and, and dislike and attack him because it's not natural. He's a sweet teenage kid only doing good things. He just happens to have a mask on. That's really hard. I wouldn't. I it would. It would be a struggle for me to try to tell Spider-Man stories that I could think could make people believably upset the city, upset and scared that the that Spider-Man's around. A lot of comic stories use that, you know, the other, but the mutants really are other. I mean, it's just natural. I mean, they just are different, and they're naturally scary to people because. If this genius walks into the room, suddenly you, we, we had an episode the first season where uh, uh, my mind went blank, Russian, uh, oh, Colossus walks into a construction site and does the work of 12 people without breaking a sweat. And so you suddenly have a, a believable story where you've got 12 guys that are about to lose their job, livelihood because this guy's a mutant. And of course they're going to dislike and fear and hate him because he's turning their world upside down. And he's not being a jerk. He's just what he is. And that's, that comes so naturally to the X-Men. I think it's why it was Marvel's greatest uh, setup and why we, we ran with it and why you know, other, other shows don't necessarily provide you with a thousand stories worth of material. I think the mutant idea is just evergreen. Well, and the other genius is... Is I you know technically you you discover you are a mutant as you go through puberty or adolescence, yeah. and everybody goes through adolescence. So depending on the age when you enter the and boy that's some scary stuff anyway. But the fact that you you may not know if you're going to become 
a mutant. And once you are, you know, you're out of luck, pal. In other words, everybody could be this, this other, everybody uh, could, could, could be this thing that is extremely compelling, extremely, uh, a really strong thing to identify with for, for anybody at any age. It's, 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 we think, I mean, it's really, of course, why it grabs teenagers and adolescents just so quickly. And we're thankful for that. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, I said we've worked on dozens of other shows and we've done some good work for other shows, but this is the one where it came together and part of it was the right, having the right people, mm-hmm. but part of it was the right setup. And that setup can be ruined if you don't have the right people, but if you don't have the right setup, you can't make a great show. Yeah. Teams matter. Vision matters. Having good content, you know, to tell the story matters that, it, you know, and, and coming of age stories, you know, a few people go like, God, that period of change and turmoil was, was wonderful. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind reliving that. Nobody thinks that, you know, they, you know, people remember being six and then an imaginal, magical Christmas Eve or, you know, magical, wonderful Thanksgiving dinners. You know, they don't, go like, God, I miss that time of turmoil, stress, and constant fear. People were not wired that way. You know, I, I remember watching the, you know, one of the Mr. Sinister arcs, mm-hmm. you know, which you, know, you guys did brilliant work tackling hate groups, you know, and calling mutants muties and, you know, the dehumanization that takes place from a hate group creating scapegoats and uh, having people wearing armbands and t-shirts. It's scary stuff that happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and the way that you were able to tackle it in a children's program, you know, it's, it's a powerful way to teach right from wrong. We we were very lucky. Uh, We had a, because as you know, with TV, especially kids, TV, with broadcast television, there are incredible amount of very strict rules, broadcast standards that you have to live by. In the old days, it meant you couldn't say pregnant out loud, or you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't say someone's bare back, or you couldn't have a, even a man and a wife sitting on the same bed together. And it gradually loosened, but for kids' TV, it's always been even tighter. Yes. And the fact that we were able to do X-Men stories on Fox was the executives were on the same page. They, if they had said no, it would have been, it would have been a little kid show with a pet dog. It, and it could have easily gone that way, but we had a standards lady uh, named Avery Coburn that would listen to us when we said, we want to kill off Morph in the, in the opening story to show that there, that violence has consequences. And she said, it took a couple back and forth, but she said, okay, do it sensitively don't don't exploit this we'll let you kill somebody then the story about god i don't know if you've gotten in your re in 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 this in in your rewatching, but uh when we when we introduced nightcrawler in uh, it's, I think it's episode 53 um he uh wolverine has a crisis of faith and nightcrawler talks to him about accepting god and the last sh- shot of the of the shows Wolverine kneeling in church. And that is not something that broadcast television usually allows you to talk about. And it wasn't that we had a, 
a pro-religious group of executives or artists or writers. It's just that's Nightcrawler's character. And so if we wanted to have Nightcrawler on the show, we wanted to address religion seriously. And that was, that was even more discussion than the killing discussion because you could imagine TV stations are nervous about getting angry parents. And angry parents write letters. And uh, that took a lot of discussion before we wrote that episode. Well, not there yet. Look forward to seeing it. And that's brilliant. You know, it's, faith is a part of life for a lot of people. You know, I'm a big believer in Carl Jung. You know, that, that's one of the psychological impulses that humans have is we're seeking faith. And, and there are some people who their faith is science and or their faith is atheism and they're very militant in their belief it's like you know you're acting like it's a faith so take a look in the mirror uh but i i'm glad you guys did that and i I look forward to to getting there because yeah that's the key component of the character and it wasn't proselytizing it wasn't saying hey everybody let's all go to church but it was a discussion about religion which i thought was amazing that could be had on a Saturday morning cartoon. And again, all credit to the executives at Fox Kids and, um, and, and uh, Broadcast Standards and Practices, Margaret Avery Coburn, because that, that took some real guts to, to make those decisions. But, but here we are 25 years later still talking about these episodes with, with real affection. You know, recently, the Daredevil series on Netflix, both seasons... Wonderful show. Wonderful show. Both seasons have done a fantastic job in addressing faith. And it's not done in a way where it's like, you know, a giant Catholicism commercial, but it's core to who Matt Murdock is. Mm-hmm. And his uh, discussions with his priest are good. And there were subtle, powerful messages with the Punisher, who's also Catholic. And when they have that discussion on the ship that maybe this time we do it your way, Frank, and the Punisher telling Daredevil, no, you don't want to be like me. I don't know how many people caught like how in-depth and brilliant that was, but great writing. And faith can be part of somebody's character in a way that's not over the top, you know, that doesn't come across as a zealot. It's just like core component. That's how they make decisions. It's how they behave. It's how they act towards others. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and you guys have done that well. <laughs> so, thanks. So, how can uh, folks find you on social media and your website? Ah, well, thank you for asking that because I, I forget how we found each other. I think it was through, well, it was through San Diego Comic Fest. And then, uh, we have a Twitter account. We are X-Men TAS, which for us is X-Men the Animated Series, just to make it a little easier to find. And then online, uh, we also have a blog that, uh, with the manuscript coming due in a matter of days, has not been um, daily postings on yeah, there. Yeah, I used to post 27, 28 posts a month. I'm down to about six or seven getting but, the book done, but it's still, we're still posting. A lot of fun links there to other things, X-Men related, you know, uh, even, even 
a great cover of the theme song from one of our favorite heavy metal artists, uh, <laughs> Eric Calderon, and just the link to the theme song itself because it's, I think, the greatest theme song ever. <laughs> but um, that is at xmentas.com. Right. So xmentas on Twitter gets you to us there, and xmentas.com gets you to the blog. And we sure hope folks can find us because the more the merrier. You guys are extremely active on Twitter, so that's that is pretty fun and enjoy interacting with you there. And uh, yeah, we'll be busy getting ready for fest, as I know you you are too. And uh, I saw an email from Mike come in just now that I think he finished the schedule, so we'll know. Oh, that'll be good. That'll be good. I could tell tell all the other guys. Exactly. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, <laughs> Julia and Eric. Thank you so much. I look forward to geeking out with you in person. Oh, Joshua, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. We can't wait to see how the trial comes out. Me too. Hearing, 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 <laughs> hearing, hearing. Not a full trial. It's easier to do a hearing as opposed to a full trial. So, and we'll also have a uh, Star Wars panel focused on Rogue One, and so we'll have two judges on that one. Oh. So. Well, Comic Fest is done even more fun. More it's and more fun. Looking forward to it. And, uh, and uh, since I do believe in nepotism, my brother Gabriel Diani will have his film Diani and Divine Meet the Apocalypse, which will be in the same room. And uh, they have America Young, who did stunt work. She will be there on the panel uh, after the screening as well. So there's, yeah, nepotism is strong. Um, uh, Thanksgiving will be easier. So with that. <laughs> well done. Thank you. It's, mom would be proud. So with that, <laughs> stay geeky, America. Stay geeky.